Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And today, in this hour, I have a chance to talk to Ken Samples. He's a uh, theologian and philosopher. He's on the senior, he's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. You can always go to reasons.org to see his good looking picture and learn more about him. He's authored many books, and some of the books that I have enjoyed uh, reading and talking about include Christianity Cross Examined, Classic Christian Thinkers, and God Among Sages. He's also a reason to believe straight thinking podcast and also writes reflections, which is a weekly blog dedicated to exploring the Christian worldview. Ken, so nice to have you back on the show. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Bill. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, I think today's going to get personal, isn't it? I think this is a pretty personal topic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I teased a little bit that to the listeners that we're going to talk about brain lesions, and I'm not sure um, exactly what they are, how you get them, but I know you've had some experience with with them yourself. So before we get there, um, let's just kind of, because we get a lot of new listeners all the time, and I just, you know, want to ask you and introduce you once again to my listeners, and and just maybe you can tell us how long have you been a philosopher and a theologian? Yeah, well, thank you very much for asking. Um, well, I have been working in the field of Christian apologetics for about 35 years. Uh, the last 25 have been at Reasons to Believe, which is really kind of a science, faith, apologetic organization. Prior to that, I did a little bit of your kind of work. I was one of the co-hosts of the Bible Answer Men radio program, and I would field questions. So I've been uh teaching philosophy for about 30 years, working in apologetics for about 35 years, and uh, I certainly enjoy it. Uh, writing is always a challenging thing, but it's great when people read it and, and convey to me that it's helped them. That's, that's when I really get encouraged. Mm-hmm. Was that with Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man? Yeah, I worked uh, prior to Hank. I worked with Walter Martin, who was kind of the original oh, yeah. Bible Man, but I crossed over my time after Walter Martin, and I uh, worked there with Hank. Yes. Yeah, Walter Martin. He was kind of uh, a guy that would that occasionally would uh, rattle cages. He was. Uh, I call him the General Patton of Christian <laughs> apologists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was my first Bible teacher in the faith, and just an encyclopedic understanding of so many topics and. And he did the Bible Answer Man. All he had was his Bible. He had wow. nothing else. I was uh, uh, challenged, and but also uh, somewhat intimidated by him. But he was uh, a great mentor, and I miss him a lot. Yeah, that is so impressive um, when you have your Bible, and that is it. And you can speak the way, you know, you speak, or Hank Hanegraaff, or uh, Mr. Martin would speak. It's very impressive. That's a gift. 
Well, the Lord is, uh, may the Lord be glorified amen. by all those. Things. Yeah, amen. So let's talk a little bit about brain lesions and help us understand uh, what they are and tell us about your illness, if you don't mind. Yeah, this was, uh, this was right around Thanksgiving in 2003, so it's been a few years ago. I was at work on a Wednesday, and I came home, had a headache, felt kind of sick to my stomach, and I went to bed. And uh, my wife later told me that I didn't wake up for a couple days, and uh, she was a bit concerned. So she works at a hospital, uh, talked with the, the, uh, the chief of nursing there, and he said, you know, you really should take your husband to the emergency room because something doesn't sound right. So I went in on a Sunday to the emergency room, very intuitive doctor. Uh, he looked at my symptoms and I said, you know, I, I, I just got this real difficult pain in my head. He said, that's puzzling to me. And so he had me take a CAT scan and uh, he came back to me and I'll never forget it. He, he said, uh, he said, you are seriously ill. Um, and he said, I'm going to have to transfer you to another hospital. Uh, you know, I thought maybe I just had a bad case of the flu, um, but it, just kind of a cold chill ran through me. Mm-hmm. Of, course, of course, later, I the doctors weren't sure. It was kind of a mystery as to what I had. They initially, Bill, thought I had brain cancer, which uh, I didn't like hearing. Um, but slowly and gradually, they, they noticed that I had a large lesion in my right lung. So this is kind of like an infection, a sore, and uh, six in my brain, and they were abscessed. I later realized, reading and talking with a couple of my doctors, I think I had like four doctors, and I could even hear them. I'd be laying in bed, and I was kind of groggy. They were pumping medication into me, and of course, the brain lesions made thinking very difficult, but I could hear them talking like, well, you know, if, if it's this, we should expect to see these symptoms, but we don't. If it's this other, we would expect to see different. And I was thinking to myself, I wish medicine was more of a certain practice mm-hmm. rather than a probabilistic one. But um, I read later that people who have uh, multiple abscess brain lesions, the mortality rate is 80 percent. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I went to two doctors after I recovered, after I was cured. It ended up I had... Um, I had what is called nocardia, which is a soil-based bacteria. So a bacteria came into my lung and then was transferred to my brain. When I had previous doctors, I remember one of them looking at me. He had my big chart in his hand, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, somebody must have been watching over you. And uh, I've had a couple doctors say that without soliciting any kind of, Mm. you know, I'm a Christian, I'm religious, uh, so it was it was a very difficult time. It was difficult uh, for many reasons. One, I thought I might die. I wasn't so concerned about dying, although I wasn't crazy about the idea. I was worried about my wife and my kids, which were younger. I was only 45 at the time. My kids were young, and I was I was very concerned about that. And um, but it was tough because you know I've always taken for granted my very tough-minded mind. I've always been able to rely upon it. My, you know, my memory has always been very, very good. I've always been able during difficult times to just will myself. But because I was so sick, I 
I couldn't hold on. I could. I felt like I was in the ocean and a riptide had taken me. And uh, it's the toughest experience I've I've had in my life. So that that taught me, I think, some lessons. And I I try to talk about those, by the way, in you know some of my writings. Mm-hmm. So that was my difficult, challenging experience. Mm-hmm. So maybe Ken, we can talk about the mind-body connection. I mean, did your beliefs prior to your illness uh, regarding the mind-body connection, did that, did those change? Yeah, it did. You know, I, I think that, Bill, I think the Bible teaches a basic mind-body dualism. Now, the Bible doesn't get into it the way, you know, the famous French philosopher René Descartes or the great uh, medieval philosopher Thomas Aquinas. But I, I think if you go, for example, to Genesis 2-7, God takes the dust of the ground, the breath of life, we become a living being. If you look at Scripture, uh, it talks about us having a body. It also talks about us having uh, a soul or a spirit. Now, I take the position that soul and spirit are the same thing. They're used, in my opinion, interchangeably. So I think the Bible does teach that the uh, the biblical anthropology is some kind of a mind-body dualism. Now, for a lot of us, and probably even for me, I thought at the time that, uh, you know, um, I, I thought more about my soul than I thought about my body. And I think what came out of my experience was, was a kind of philosophical and theological uh, epiphany, if you will, I began to realize that I think that there is a deeper union between the body and the soul, between the brain and the mind. And that what I mean by that is, if your brain is not working, then it is enormously difficult to express the thought of the mind of the soul. And I began to realize that, you know, uh, somebody like Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, he said that we are we are an enfleshed soul, so much so that at the at the death of our body, where our soul will go into what we call the intermediate state, I believe that we will be in the presence of Christ, we will be there with uh, all of our brothers and sisters, and we will worship and love, and we will be at rest awaiting the resurrection. Well, Aquinas says that in that intermediate state, we're not fully humaned until the the resurrection of our body. Mm-hmm. That's unity. So that was something that came out of this. I began to realize that you have to think both about the brain and the mind, the brain and the soul, not just one or the other. We're not a, we're not a soul that floats around in the body. We are, we are an intricate unity of the physical and the non-physical, the mm-hmm. material and the material. So Ken, as believers, we have the deposit, the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So the the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is living in us. So God is very present with us right now. So are we not in the very presence of the Lord to some degree right now? That's right. I mean, if we if we want to to be very careful in our thinking, God is everywhere present. Uh, and God is not just everywhere present because of, of our relationship with the Lord, 
because of our saving relationship, we have been regenerated. The Spirit dwells with, within us. And so our Spirit and, and the third person of the Trinity uh, has, have a union together. Now, uh, what will happen in the intermediate state and what will happen in the final state or the future state, uh, I suspect from reading Scripture that we'll have greater awareness of God's presence uh, in the beatific vision where we'll see God face to face. Now, I think that's a metaphor. God doesn't have a face, but face to face means intimacy. So mm-hmm. surely God is here and with us, but we may be, I hope, much more cognizant of that in, in the next wor- world, the next life. Mm-hmm. Ken, I want to ask you about the idea of the mind and the consciousness, but I, I want to first step away for a minute and take a break. But when when I come back, I, I, I want to talk about the, the mind and the consciousness, because to me that feels like a big mystery, and I don't know how to sort through that. But as a theologian and philosopher, I don't think you're going to have much trouble with that topic. So uh, next up, when we come back, more with uh, Professor Ken Samples as we discuss the idea of mind and consciousness. That's all next. Samples is my guest. He's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. You can go to reasons.org learn more about Ken and his amazing think tank team. He's written a number of books, uh, Christianity Cross-Examined, Classic Christian Thinkers, and God Among Sages. And today we're talking about quite an amazing experience he had many years ago with some brain lesions. And now we're going to chat a little bit about the whole idea of mind and consciousness. And to me, Ken, that's a little bit of a mystery. Maybe you can help sort through that. Absolutely. I'm not sure there is a greater mystery to us as human beings than the issue of consciousness. And it it certainly uh, raises the question of God and, and um, if there is a God and what that relationship would be. Um, you know, as we think about consciousness, we, we have awareness, we have an aboutness, that is, we can think about things, we have a self-awareness, um, we're able to observe and, and have all of these unique qualities and characteristics that relate to being conscious beings. And yet the question is, uh, how did that consciousness come to be? Where did it come from? And of course, if we look at two of the competing biggest competing worldviews today, on one hand, you would have uh, a religious explanation that would be largely a Judeo-Christian explanation that uh, God is an infinite, eternal being. He has an infinite mind. He is a personal being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God created the world, and therefore he created beings that in a finite way have a consciousness like his. Now, that's the religious view. 
But the secular view says, hey, wait a minute, maybe we're nothing but a body. Maybe the natural world is all there is. Maybe there's no supernatural. So there is no, uh, there is no survival after death. There's no soul. There's no spiritual God. So how did this, how did humans come to have consciousness? And of course, this is a very difficult thing for uh, the secular perspective to understand, to explain. Uh, sometimes they will argue that if you reduce the, you know, the human uh, person to the core, maybe you can get some kind of understanding of consciousness, or maybe the brain evolved to a complex state, and then there was the emergent property. That is, the brain grew and developed to a certain place, and it, what emerged out of it is this awareness, this consciousness. Well, um, it is what you have just said. It is, Bill, a, a deep mystery. There are big challenges. I, I, uh, I think anybody who says they have a complete understanding of this is um, not being truthful, not being reflective about it. Um, I think there's a way of uh, presenting this as a powerful case for, for God, uh, and for a Christian anthropology, but no doubt this is a, this is a deep mystery, and it's one in which thoughtful people are divided over. Mm-hmm. Ken, did ancient terminology distinguish between the mind and the heart, or is that is that something that's changed really, and we see it more in modern languages today? Well, you know, if you look at Scripture, for example, I mean, Jesus himself talks about heart, mind, soul. Right. Uh, in fact, it's there's even more than that. You, there are different times where the number might be five or six things. This is one reason why I think that soul and body are not differing components in the human being. Now, there are some Christians who affirm that. I differ with them. But I think what Jesus meant when he said heart, mind, soul, strength, uh, and others that are added, I think what he meant is God wants us to love him with the entire fabric of our being. Now, certainly when you go into the ancient world to Plato and Aristotle, they believed uh, in a distinction between uh, body and soul, and, and there were differences that came out of that. And their thinking in many ways was uh, developed and critiqued and analyzed by Christian thinkers in the Middle Ages. I mean, one of the reasons that encourages me, Bill, about the truth of my faith is that Christianity has produced remarkable people who lived hundreds, more than a thousand years ago, and yet they were at the forefront of learning and education and philosophy. And so you know, even though, uh, you know, we live 700, 800 years after Thomas Aquinas or 1600 years after Augustine, they, when they write about things, you think, wow, I mean, no, they don't live in the modern world of technological advancement in science and things like that. But boy, they have deep insight about the human condition. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to wrap my, my head around this, the human consciousness it's because it seems so complicated at times. When we think of human beings, obviously we, we can deliberately influence our thoughts and perspectives. And is that the same as consciousness? 
Well, I think that's a very important part of consciousness. Okay. Uh, you know, being, I mean, part of the, part of the debate about abortion um, is not just the question of when does life begin. I think that issue is solved. Uh, science indicates with great clarity that, that human life begins at conception. Uh, the, the debate often for those who want to support abortion they say, well, you can be human, but but not have uh, personhood. So when we think about consciousness, um, you know, we are thinking about our our awareness of ourself, and that awareness of the self takes time. You know, uh, I would say, for example, that babies in the womb they are human beings in development, not developing toward being human beings. Mm-hmm. I would say that's true of you and me, even even after we are born, after we go to school, after we grow up, we're always human beings in in development. So consciousness would involve our ability to think, to to reflect, to to observe the world, to recognize that there's a world out there independent of us uh, and, you know, to to be able to uh to be able to actually think about things that don't even exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that is that miracle of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go with consciousness for 400, Ken? <laughs> I, I, uh, it's a tough category, but I, I, I'm hoping I can pull it off. All right. Human consciousness is not the same as conscience, right? Yeah, I think that that's right. Um, uh, your conscience, your your moral awareness—that is your your ability to to observe something and to adjudicate whether it is morally acceptable or not—that's your conscience. But I think your conscience is part of your soul, which is part of your brain mind unity. Hmm. Great answer. All right. I think what we're going to continue, I want to ask some more personal questions, if you don't mind, but I think we need to do it after we take a break. But I do want to ask about, I want to still talk about consciousness, because I I know we talk about human consciousness, and then I've also heard about Christ consciousness, and I want to maybe delve into that and find out what the difference is and how we can uh, differentiate between the two, obviously, and then um, I want to continue to ask you personal questions about your experience because I find it fascinating. And the fact that when you were 45 years old, you had a doctor basically saying 80% chance you're not going to make it. And that was 2003. Uh, God really has protected you and and taken you down a very specific uh, path and has sustained you in a very special way, which is, I know, encouragement to many listeners. Amen. All right. Ken Samples is my guest. He's a senior research scholar at uh, reasons.org. And we'll be um, talking about consciousness when we come back.
guest is Professor Ken Samples. He's a theologian and philosopher at Reasons.org. And before the break, Ken, I was talking about Christ consciousness, because I hear that coming up with people who are sort of into the New Age thing, and they, they talk about a Christ consciousness. And I think Christians need to be equipped when they hear that to have a, um, a, a response, a reply, something that is uh, biblical. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, vocabulary is very important. We've got to define our terms. I mean, if you mean by Christ consciousness merely that uh, a Christian recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, well, that that's pretty acceptable. But as you mentioned, uh, there are New Age ideas, Eastern mystical mm-hmm. ideas, that mix and mingle with other Christian ideas— so some people, when they talk about Christ consciousness, would affirm the idea of, of pantheism, that all reality is one, one reality is God, and we have some kind of mystical relationship to that pantheistic element in Christ. That, I would say, is unbiblical, uh, and, and Scripture indicates very carefully Uh, even about philosophy, that you want to uh, look at what is being taught very clearly and carefully, because there are a lot of false ideas out there. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would not use the terminology Christ consciousness, because it's so intermingled with Eastern mysticism. Yeah. Question came in, didn't Jesus ask, what are you thinking about in your heart? And Scripture says Mary pondered these things in her heart. Yeah, very good. Uh, glad to, I'm glad that was brought up. So the New Testament word cardia is heart. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, cardiac doctors, they, you know, study the heart. Cardia, heart, can is another metaphor for that inner you. Uh, it is another metaphor for the inner you, your mind, your soul, your spirit, your heart. I think these terms are used interchangeably. But it, it's certainly the case that uh, Jesus does ask people, you know, what are your thoughts within you, in your mm-hmm. heart? Mary ponders these things. Again, I think that's being used in, as part of the inner spiritual or non-physical you. Mm-hmm. And I'm open to correction 24-7. That's one of my philosophies. And I've always believed when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, that... The heart word in that passage does refer to uh, the, the, the cardiac uh, version, which basically would be translated into love the Lord your God with the decisions you make. I think that's right. And I think the overarching idea is love God with all of your being, with, with, the deci- with your decisions, with your choices, with your mind, with your you know, your reflections. I, I, I think it's really kind of uh, Hebrew poetry that's being passed through the Greek language. And I like that because I think that that's, that's a very important component. A lot of Christians maybe don't appreciate enough that they should love God with their mind, along with their money and mm-hmm. their decisions and their entire being. Because, Ken, how else would we interpret that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, well, your heart is a beating muscle, right? It's an organ that's pumping blood through your system. How do you love God with that specific organ? That's right. It's a metaphor. And and that metaphor would have been clearly understood to Jesus's Hebrew listeners. Oh, good. Uh, 
so, you know, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic and they would have recognized that, yeah, that's, uh, it's right out of the Old Testament. Love the Lord thy God, Yahweh Elohim, with all of your heart, mind, soul. So many of these things Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount were already presented in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I mean, the easiest thing for me to say is love the Lord your God with the decisions you make. That to me is as clear as it can be. Because that would involve how you think about them, how you conceive of them, how you exercise them, how you work them. And and uh, so I, I think your thinking is on the right track. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ken. Making me feel good. So sometimes this is a little difficult to talk about. And Rosie was saying during the break that we almost need a whiteboard because when we talk about uh, consciousness, which is different from conscience, which is the word conscience, right? And yep, the yep. consciousness is spelled C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. So let's get back to the, the consciousness. And what is the hard problem of consciousness? Yeah, so again, consciousness is going to be part of our self-awareness, our, our aboutness. We can think about things. We can reflect upon things. Uh, it is our thinking uh, along with our awareness. Now, the hard part of consciousness it gets us back into kind of our worldview thinking again. From a secular point of view, uh, the hard problem of consciousness is that, that many secular philosophers have tried to come up with an explanation, an evolutionary explanation to explain human thinking, human consciousness, human awareness, whatever term you want to use there. Mm -hmm. but the problem is that they have largely... Uh, met a, a dead end. I will tell you one philosopher in particular, an interesting philosopher named Thomas Nagel. He was a philosopher of mind, uh, taught at New York University, one of the elite schools in our country, a leading uh, philosopher. He ultimately concluded uh, in his book, Mind and Cosmos, that the evolutionary explanation for the mind uh, has failed. And uh, he rather than adopting a Christian perspective or a, a biblical Judeo-Christian view, he adopted panpsychism, which is the idea, and it's an ancient view, but it's still held by some, that everything has consciousness, even, even physical objects, even things that seem to be material, that they have consciousness. Now, uh, rather than getting into the, the weeds of that view, what I want to say here, Bill, is this, that here is a leading secular philosopher who concedes that explaining consciousness is so difficult that you almost have to begin with it. It has to be a given. Mm. Rather than it emerging through evolutionary processes where, where you have the consciousness as an emergent property of the brain— uh, and, and again, there are, there are a lot of secular people who uh, will acknowledge that consciousness is very difficult. They would say, just as religious people maybe, maybe have a hard time explaining the problem of evil, pain, and suffering, maybe an atheist would say, well, you know, we, uh, we're at the, at the present state where we don't understand consciousness, and we can't seem to be able to explain it. I would again say that I think the biblical perspective, a, a Judeo-Christian perspective, I think does a, a good job of explaining why there is consciousness. And uh, 
I, I think that the naturalistic or atheistic or, or secular view, uh, it, it, it's a potential defeater for that worldview. And all I mean by that is, um, I think it's such a it's such a difficult thing for naturalism. It may illustrate that naturalism is going down the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Ken, talk about what kind of influence the enemy would have relative to our consciousness. Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, you know, uh, I remember somebody saying, "Look, can the devil read our minds?" Um, I don't see any data from Scripture that would lead me to the conclusion that the devil can read our mind. But since the devil has uh, many people who work with him and for him, uh, and these beings have been around a very, very long time and have observed the human nature and human beings, I think they have a good ability to predict uh how we'll respond to things and what we will do. Uh, And therefore, I think that when it comes to temptation, it's not so much that the devil or the demons read our mind, but that they are very familiar with human creatures and have learned how to effectively tempt them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What what do we have? Let's talk about the, the worldly, the secular answer to the existence of mind and consciousness. Maybe some more on that. Yeah, well, again, if you if you think about naturalism, so atheism is not a worldview as much as it's merely a denial of God. But if you deny God, if you are an atheist, you're going to adopt probably a worldview of naturalism. And uh, not all naturalists agree on all the details, but essentially that the natural world is all there is. The natural world is the explanation of all that exists. So some of them would be materialists or physicalists, all simply meaning that all there really is is matter and energy and, and physical objects. Well, uh, consciousness is not material. It's not physical. It's not, it's not a, a physical object. It's immaterial. It's non-physical. So where do we get things like that from a world that's merely physical? And again, I think that this is as big a challenge to naturalism and secularism as maybe the problem of evil would be to people who believe in God. Why is God, if God's good, all powerful, all knowing, uh, why does he allow evil in the world or why so much evil? So both of these worldviews have challenging issues. And from a naturalist point of view, again, I I think most of them uh, previously would say that human beings evolved from a common ancestor, and uh, when they developed the large brain that Homo sapiens have, a remarkable thing took place in that uh, there was a a property that emerged, and that would be consciousness. Um, But again, there are even secular people like Thomas Nagel and others who say, that sounds a lot like faith. Hmm. Yeah. Professor Ken Samples is my guest. He is at Reasons to Believe, or reasons.org is the website. Uh, Fascinating, Ken, as a theologian and philosopher, when you talk about atheism, and we deal with somebody who, according to 2 Timothy, um, we need to pray that they come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. A very sobering passage in 2 Timothy. So when we 
talk to people who are atheists, when you talk to them, what is your strategy to try to get some kind of common ground or some place where you can have an agreement or an agreement to disagree? Or how do you gain ground with someone with an atheistic view? Well, really good question. Not not an easy answer uh, to really come up with. But I would say this. I would say, you know, from a Christian or a biblical worldview, we realize that human beings are one, fallen. We are sinful. Uh, our rebellion took place in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve rebelling, uh, eating of the forbidden fruit. And I believe in original sin, which simply means that Adam's nature has been passed on to all of his progeny. So when I was born into the world, I was born a broken, fallen sinner. Doesn't mean I don't have a lot of great qualities, because after all, I'm still made in the image of God. But you mentioned a couple things. Uh, I, we're, we're broken sinners. And then uh, while the devil is not a rival to God, it is still true that the demonic presence in the world is described in very sobering terms in Scripture. The whole world is in the lap of the devil. Um, so the and and I think, Bill, the biggest uh, challenge from a demonic point of view is always deception. Um, that is that there are truths mixed and and switched around so that people are deceptive. And so in John, for example, First John, we're told many false prophets, false teaching, false Christ, false gods. Now. Um, of course, while I believe that non-Christians uh, are sinful and uh, stand in rebellion with God, this is taught clearly in the book of Romans chapter 1, I also realize that these people are also recipients. Uh, they, have, they are made in the image of God. They have general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. They have a a moral conscience within, Romans chapter 1, and they are the recipients of common grace, meaning that God allows his sunshine and his rain. That means he, he is providentially gives all, all human beings, not just his children, but all human beings, great, great gifts and benefits. And so uh, I realize that uh, the secular folks are often very intelligent, they're very able, uh, and yet I realize that they are in a, in a spiritually blinded point of view. I'm just being perfectly candid because I think that's what Scripture indicates. But what I try to do, Bill, is one, I try to treat them with real respect. I try to show them that I'm a fair-minded person. I'm not interested in, in misrepresenting them. I'm not interested in manipulating them. Uh, but I want to treat them with, uh, with respect, and I take their ideas seriously. And what I largely attempt to do is to try to make a case that I think a theistic, a biblical, a, uh, a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, of consciousness, of mathematics, of philosophy, uh, of our own human condition— that I think I think the biblical perspective does a better job of explaining these profound realities. And there's another profound reality, and that's Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. When I open the pages of Scripture, I'm like, where did this guy come from? He's unlike anybody I have ever encountered. And uh, 
you know, if the if the apostles invented him, then they're better than Tolkien and Lewis <laughs> and all these other people. Yeah. So that's another thing that I think our worldview does a good job of explaining. I believe Jesus really was the Son of God, and he taught and he did the things that the New Testament says he did. Amen to that. Professor Kent Samples is my guest, Reasons uh, to Believe. You can go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken. And we're going to continue talking about uh, his experience uh, with brain lesions and what he learned from that when we come back. samples from Reasons to Believe. You can go to reasons.org and learn more about Ken. We're talking about consciousness today, and that's kind of a big word because it's really hard to understand. Now, it's it has nothing to do with self-consciousness, does it, Ken? thought I'd throw that in there. It doesn't have anything to do with a mystical idea of consciousness. It, it does involve the idea that I'm consciously aware of myself. I'm aware right right now that I'm talking to you, and even though I can't see you at the present moment, I can hear your voice, and I, I think Skype is a reality, so I think there's a real bill, and, and he has uh, a production assistant, Rosie, and she's there too. Mm-hmm. But that's an awareness, and I think awareness of ourself and others is part of that unique consciousness. Mm-hmm. That is um, so interesting because consciousness, you know, even you hear about people who are on their, their deathbed and maybe they've been in a, a coma even for a couple of days and people will say, well, they can still hear you. Talk to them. Make sure, make sure you give them, tell them your heart to tell them you love them and read scripture to them. And, and I, would, I would say, yes, that's absolutely my response as well. I would want to do that. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, even when I was very, very sick, uh, again, with a lesion in my right lung, six, and they were not just lesions, they were abscess lesions. And so, uh, again, they, the doctor thought, wow, you know, is this brain cancer? Uh, there was even one, at one point, they asked whether I might have AIDS. And I remember the doctor saying, you know, have you ever, have you engaged in risky behavior? And I said, no, you know, I'm a pretty uh, uh, average, boring kind of guy. No, I've only had love, made love with one woman in my life, and that's my wife, and I don't take drugs. And he said, well, can I test you? I said, go right ahead. But I found out later that my immune system was really down, and a lot of AIDS patients have that same uh, struggle with the immune system. So he was trying to cross off all the T's he could get. And, and it was only later that they realized by taking part of my, my lung, uh, I, uh, the test of my lung collapsed, so they actually had to open me up. I've got about a 12-inch scar on my back. I'll, I'll show it to you sometime, Bill. Uh, but they took out and they said, ah, it's bacterial. Now we can treat it with antibiotics. And I took antibiotics for about eight months. I used to take 12 large 
horse pills uh, because they wanted to make sure that they stamped out that bacteria. Sure. And I was cured, and I consider I consider uh, medicine to be a cure provided by the benevolent God who made us and the earth. Yeah. Amen. So do you think you could have gleaned the understanding that you now have on this topic had you not gone through that illness? Well, I'll tell you, I I would not want to go through it. And probably the only thing worse than going through an experience like that is seeing your loved ones go through it. I know Mm -hmm. it was very tough on my wife. It was tough on my kids. Uh, I later read things that my kids wrote. You know, uh, they talk to their teachers and saying, you know, my dad may die. And I afterwards I realized, wow, this didn't just happen to me. It happened to everybody I love, people I worked with, my friends, church. They were all concerned about me. And um, I think that when you go through these difficult experiences in life, that is one of my reasons for thinking that God allows pain and suffering and, and sometimes even evil is that he is engaged in in soul-making. He is transforming our character. And uh, sometimes, uh, well, my old uh, Bible teacher and my old boss, Walter Martin, used to say on the Bible Answer Man, some people won't look up until they're flat on their back. Mm. Sometimes God is doing something. Now, again, I I hope I learned all the lessons because I don't want to go through it again, but I think the answer to your question, Bill, is I, I learned a lot. And one of the very important things I learned is I'm much more empathetic toward people who suffer um, and, and aware that, you know, Bill, some people are really courageous. They're not firefighters. They're not cops. They're not soldiers. But they have serious illnesses. And just to get out of bed in the morning or to face the world with their debilitating illness. These people are very courageous and they need our support. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of cliches, but I have heard this one that people who are mightily used by God are oftentimes mightily broken. Well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think that, uh, you know, again, I enjoy good help. Uh, I like it when I wake up in the morning and I can jump out of bed. I can, you know, go. I went hiking yesterday. Um, I love all the, the great things that come from being a healthy person. Um, but, you know, when I look back at my life, some of the challenges I've seen, I've seen family members who suffered with depression. I had a brother who took his life in suicide. Um, it is oftentimes the very deeply challenging things that deep us, that shape our character uh, in the best ways. Mm-hmm. Having had that brush with a possible death, uh, Ken, back in 2003, what did it do to reset how you think about life going forward? Did, did, you, did you have a, a greater sense of, of everyday appreciation for even the simplest things? What, what did God do to give you sort of a, 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 new, a new set of eyes on life? I think one thing that was really transformative for me, Bill, was uh, I'm not the captain of my own ship. Mm. Uh, again, you know, when you're younger, you're, you're strong, you're, you're healthy, you're independent. You know, you think, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm right there. I'm building a career. I'm building a family. I've got all these things going on. I've got all these plans. I realized that uh, in just just a single day, you could develop 
serious health problems, something could happen, losing a loved one, that we're we're not the captain of our own ship. Mm -hmm. And one of the remarkably great things about Scripture, it tells us that that the Lord is the master of our ship, that he is in control, that his providence is at work in our life. And God loved us so much that the Son of God came into the world to take away our sins and reconcile us, mm-hmm. and, and that we should be thankful and grateful and, and not just take things for granted. Yeah. Uh, Ken, when I talk to you, I forget I'm doing a radio show. I just feel like I'm sitting having a cup of coffee with a friend. I feel exactly the same way. Uh, I, you know, I've, you know, I've done probably a thousand radio interviews, uh, and you're the best that I think I've ever been interviewed. Oh, by. Thank you. I wasn't looking for that, but I'll take it. Thank you so much. Coming from yeah. you, that means a yeah. lot. Thanks, Ken. Yeah. And have a great rest of the evening, and blessings to you and your family. And I'll talk to you again next month. Thank you very much, you Bill. Bet. Ken Samples has been my guest. Reasons to Believe, and go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken and his books. Christianity Cross-Examine, Classic Christian Thinkers, and God Among Sages. That's all the show we have for today. As you lay your head on the pillow tonight, know that God is working out his great plan in your life. And he loves you. I do too. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.